As you're finding your seat, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Peter. We return to our Faithful Sojourners series. It's been quite some time since we've been here. Several things have happened, obviously, since the last time we were in 1 Peter. would like to point out that we dealt quite a bit with trial and turbulence and temptation and all of those types of things in 1 Peter, and then for the past couple of months have certainly been the trial, haven't they? We trust and we believe and we hope that Christ was glorified in this church through all that we've been going through and that he will continue to be so for any future trials that he ordains for our life. Just a few words by way of introduction before we read our passage. I'm clearly a younger pastor in a young ministry, and it can so often be altogether overwhelming to think of how to preach week in and week out, how to care for people, how to oversee the affairs of the church, how to think about music, how to think about budgets, and do we shut down the church when it's snowy and icy, and so on and so on. If you've ever wondered why I take things so seriously, I hope that our time in this passage today will help to illuminate that, the reason behind that. But I am fairly new to ministry, and I've been the pastor at this address for just over two years now. I have no formal education behind me. I'm not a church planting expert, and I don't have a well of lifelong wisdom to draw from. What a way to open a sermon, huh? If all of you were looking to me to come up with a five-year church growth strategy, I'm sorry to break it to you, but you would be very disappointed because I don't have one. If that's what you were looking for, then I would soon be out of a job, wouldn't I? Thankfully, though, in all of my inadequacy and inability, God does not leave it up to the minister how he is to conduct himself in ministry or how he is to minister to the people because ministry is about God and his people. It is shepherding the flock of God. That is to say that you do not belong to me. You belong to God. This building is not mine. I don't own this physical pulpit. The songs that we sing are not about me. None of this in this building is mine or about me. It is all about caring for God's people in God's way, by God's power, for God's glory. God's call to ministry, then, is not a call to fame or fortune, but it's simply a call to faithfulness. A faithful ministry is a ministry that will stand the test of time. The culture will change, everything will change all around us, but faithfulness to what God has spoken, that's what stands the test of time. And that's why I love the ministries of John, the John MacArthur's and the Martin Lloyd-Joneses of the world. If you ever wonder why I quote them so much or refer to them so often, it's because their ministries have stood the test of time. 
The things that they have spoken, the things that they have preached, they are just as relevant today as they were back in 1970 or 1870 or 1670. That's why I love the Puritans. They didn't buy into church growth strategies or pragmatic practices. They simply heard God's call to faithfulness and they answered it. And so, our passage today is going to deal with that call. It's going to be focused on the call to faithful shepherding. As we read our text, we will see that Peter exhorts the elders to faithfully shepherd the flock of God. He'll explain how to do that. And so, the faithful minister will then receive a reward from the chief shepherd when he returns. With that in mind, please stand with me as we read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of the living God. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here safely. We thank you that though we are small in number this morning, what we are here to talk about is not small. The God that we are here to worship is not small. You are anything but. We pray that you received our song to you as a pleasing aroma, a pleasing sacrifice before you this morning. And Lord, we pray further that you would use all of my inadequacies and inabilities this morning to faithfully despite me to faithfully proclaim your word, to clearly explain it, and to effectively apply it. Lord, I can speak the words, but only you can apply them to the heart. Only you can pierce hearts. Only you can change hearts. And I pray that you would apply this word to all of our hearts as you see fit. And I pray that this text would mark the lives of both myself and any future elders that we have for the glory of Christ. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of today's sermon is very simply The Call to Faithful Shepherding. The Call to Faithful Shepherding. We're going to begin this morning by looking at the appeal from a faithful shepherd. This is our first major heading if you're taking notes the appeal from a faithful shepherd. It's verse 1 that will be our focus. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. As you can see, Peter is very clearly laying out at the beginning of this chapter who it is that he is addressing and in what manner he is addressing them. He says, I exhort. He's not suggesting. 
He's not saying that this would probably be a good idea if you would apply this. He's saying, I exhort the elders. This is a passionate plea. He is imploring them. Further, to strengthen it, in verse 2, the first word shepherd is in the imperative. It is a command. So I will reiterate, Peter is not leaving room for interpretation, for suggestion to do this as you see fit. He is saying, I am telling you to do this as an apostle under the authority of the Holy Spirit. He's written about the Christian community at large in various ways, and he's given specific instruction to different members of the Christian community, focusing on, you remember that he focused on slaves and masters, on Christians and government and wives and husbands. And now it's time for the elders to perk up their ears and pay especially close attention. And it's interesting that he waits until chapter 5 to do this. He's addressing specifically the elders among you. Now, I want to point out that this is instructive in showing us that church leadership is an essential part of the Christian community, namely the local church, as there is an assumption here that there are elders among you. He doesn't say elders in various places or elders that if they happen to be scattered abroad, he says the elders among you. It is not elder singular either, is it? There's an S there at the end. I might not have been the best in English class, but I know for sure that an S at the end makes it plural. Elders, plural. I'd like to also mention as further aside that in this text we're going to see elders and shepherds being used interchangeably. So don't get caught up on elders or shepherds or oversight. These are all words that are meaning the same thing. The Scriptures don't portray a shepherd as being separate from a pastor, as being separate from an elder. They're all the same thing. They're three different words for the same office. And perhaps they're used that way to show us different elements that go into being a pastor or a shepherd or an elder. And so this is one of the texts that will inform our future practice as Lord willing when the Lord raises up a plurality of elders here, this will inform that practice that a shepherd is a pastor is an elder. We might have different areas of oversight, but it will, eventually, it will essentially still be the same office. Now, if you look back at the end of chapter 4 with me, I just want to briefly remind us where we are in this letter. He tells those, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. While doing good. Certainly, the while doing good aspect of that instruction applies not just to the layman, but also to the elder, if not especially so. Notice that he says, while you suffer, People in leadership, church leadership, we are not impervious to trials or temptations or to persecution. But all too often, those in church leadership would also be prone to abandon their post in the midst of great suffering. And say, you know what, this is costing me too much. I can't do this. I'm leaving. So the shepherd of the flock is not 
He is not spared from persecution. If anything, the shepherd stands to receive the brunt end of the stick as he endeavors to care for the flock. I would submit then that this is one of the main reasons why the shepherds are there among you in the first place. Think of a shepherd on a hillside tending to his flock of sheep. Imagine a wolf approaches the flock with teeth out, mouth salivating at the sight of the sheep. Imagine there, are no, there is no shepherd there. Those sheep are fair game for that wolf to devour them one by one. But now imagine that there is a shepherd there who's caring for the sheep. He will go and attack and protect the sheep from that wolf, won't he? I was reading an article about a shepherd in France. I won't try to say his name because I will butcher it, no doubt. But the article mentioned how he had lost a sheep to a wolf attack one day. He came face to face with that same wolf the same week that it killed the sheep. The article quotes him as saying, quote, He was there on the end of my staff every evening for a week. End quote. Notice the shepherd did not say, Well, one of them was eaten, one of them was taken. I have failed, I quit, I can't take this trouble, I can't take all of this that I have to deal with as a shepherd. He continued to protect the sheep from that same wolf. And in doing so, that shepherd continuously is putting himself in danger, isn't he? A wolf is a vicious animal. They are not nice, cuddly, playful animals. They are ready, they are predators and they are there for attacking. I'll say again that the shepherd of the flock is not impervious to persecution or to trouble or difficulty. And again, this is, I believe is one of the reasons why the Lord appoints elders among you for the protection of the sheep. Now remember that this letter that would be it was a letter that would be read aloud to the Christian community. So why then does it have this public exhortation to the elders? Wouldn't the Christian community be prone to say, this is about elders, I don't have to pay attention. Isn't that perhaps a temptation in your mind? Well, he's preaching about elders, I don't need to worry about that. I'm not going to be an elder and I'm not an elder. Why wouldn't he instead write a private letter to the elders? Say, hey guys, in secret, let me kind of teach you and tell you a couple of things. We don't know absolutely for certain, but we could probably deduce very safely that one of the reasons would be that it helps the whole Christian community understand the role of an elder so that they have proper expectations, wouldn't it? Some think a pastor is just there to preach on Sunday morning, and that's all he's there for. That's your bubble, pastor. You have no right outside of that pulpit. Some think, some think that he's the church's errand boy. He's the full-time guy, so he goes and runs all of the church's errands. Well, on and on and on we could go, certainly. But another reason I would suggest here is also that so that the pastors would be publicly accountable to what they have been called to do. Some think that as a pastor, they're supposed to be more akin to a boss or a CEO and hand down policies from a distant, closed office some think the pastorate is a platform for them to get their name out in the public square so that they can pursue fame. 
But whatever the misconception might be, this passage certainly serves to bring clarity to both the early church and to us. I want you to look at how Peter identifies himself. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. A threefold identification. A fellow elder, instead of Peter holding up his apostleship and saying, listen, I am an apostle, listen to me. He instead identifies himself with the elders. I'm an elder with you. He refers to them just like himself. I'm one of you guys. Listen, it would be all too easy if Peter said, I exhort you as an apostle to say, yeah, well, all of this is easy for you to say, Peter. You're an apostle. You've healed people before, Peter. You don't know what it's like to be an elder grinding it out week after week in the local church. You, You don't know what it's like. So it's easy for you to say the things that you're saying. But Peter instead identifies himself alongside them. He says, listen, my brothers, I am with you in the foxhole. I am on the same battlefield, in the same battle as you. And then he says, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Scholars are divided on whether or not Peter is meaning that he was an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ, or if he simply is saying this in regards to being a, a one who testifies of the sufferings of Christ. But certainly it would be safe to say that Peter did witness much of Christ's sufferings, didn't he? As he mentions Christ's sufferings several times throughout this letter. The point in saying this at all would be to remind us that the chief shepherd has set the example for us. The chief shepherd did and does fulfill every aspect of this call to faithfulness as he is the faithful one. He has seen what it means for the shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep as the good shepherd did. If the elder wants to pursue glory, glory only comes through suffering. And then he says, I am a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. In verse 4, Peter is going to say that the faithful shepherd will be rewarded by the chief shepherd. Look at it with me. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here he's saying that the glory will be revealed He is a partaker in the same glory that's going to be revealed. And in verse 4, he shows us that when the chief shepherd appears, that's when this glory is revealed. It's the unfading crown of glory. It's the same word, glory, doxa, doxa, where we get doxology from. It's the same word in both verse 1 and verse 4. Peter is saying that he is called to the same faithfulness in this life with the promise of glory in the next. It's not glory and fame in this life. It is an unfading crown of glory in the next. Once again, we see, as Peter has demonstrated all throughout this letter, that he has one eye on the work to be done now, and the other on the future coming of Christ and what awaits us in the next life. So Peter is bringing himself to the level of the elders He's reminding us of the example of the chief shepherd 
And he's making a public exhortation to the elders to be a faithful shepherd. Let's look at this call to faithful shepherding in verses 2 through 4. Now this is our second and final major heading for today. The call to faithful shepherding. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. As we consider Paul's call, Peter's call to faithful shepherding, we're going to look at the eight aspects of faithful shepherding that Peter gives us in these three verses. Eight aspects of faithful shepherding. Number one, the call to faithful shepherding is a call to action. The word is shepherd. It's a verb. We see that the word elder was used earlier in the noun form. He's exhorting the elders, and he's telling the elders to shepherd. This is being used now as a verb. Elder, noun, shepherd, verb. Welcome to English class. He's telling them to do shepherding. D. Edmund Hebert in his Commentary on this text rightly points out that in this singular command to shepherd, it includes, quote, all that is involved in the work of the shepherd, guiding and guarding, feeding and folding, end quote. He's telling the elders that the way to be an elder noun is to shepherd, verb. It involves activity and a specific kind of activity. The shepherd feeds the flock. He fights off predators. He protects the flock. He leads the flock. One of the primary ways that a shepherd shepherds his sheep is that he leads them to open pastures where they can graze on good land. A shepherd of the flock of God is no different. Think of what Jesus spoke to Peter in John 21:17 you remember this he said Peter do you love me Peter do you love me Peter do you love me yes lord you know i love you feed my sheep the word there for feed is actually also translated in the new testament as herdsman so it could literally be translated shepherd my sheep Peter do you love me shepherd my sheep but in it being translated as Feed my sheep, it's also indicating to us that the primary way that you care for and tend to the sheep, the primary way that you shepherd the flock of God is by feeding them. I know some of you are hungry right now and you hope that that means a physical food, literal food. Well, I hope you were here Friday because I did actually do that Friday. But this morning, it's a different kind of feeding now, isn't it? And the primary thing that he means here is spiritual food. Think of what Jesus says when he was being tempted in the wilderness. When he quotes from Deuteronomy, man shall not live on what alone? Bread alone. But by every word that proceeds from the Father's mouth, that's spiritual food. Jeremiah would have understood this concept well. He says in Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words were found, and I ate them. So the shepherd shepherds his flock 
by taking them to graze upon the hillside of the soul-nourishing pages of Scripture. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary on this text, he's writing of Martin Luther in his commentary, and he says, quote, Luther rightly argues that we shepherd God's flock by preaching the gospel, end quote. This is precisely why Paul, when he's instructing Timothy on how to be an elder, how to be a pastor, he tells him in the second letter, and he strictly charges him in the presence of God and the angels to do what? To preach the word in season and out of season. What's he saying there? Feed Christ's sheep in season and out of season all the time. Peter's imperative here to shepherd, it is a call to action. It is a call to do the work, a call to care for the sheep, a call to feed, a call to lead. The primary way a shepherd cares for the sheep is to feed the sheep. And we could go on and on there, certainly, but let's look at number two, the second aspect of the call to faithful shepherding. The call to a faithful shepherding is a call to tend to what belongs to God. The call to faithful shepherding is a call to tend to what belongs to God. He says, shepherd the flock of God. Peter has this reminder to the elders that this flock is not yours. They do not belong to you. You have not purchased them with your blood. You did not redeem them. You did not choose them. You did not save them. God did. This is His flock and they belong to Him. Think back to chapter 2, verse 25. He says, You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Notice that. The shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ is the chief shepherd, and every other shepherd is merely an under-shepherd who serves under Christ. This flock special. It is prized. It is beloved because it belongs to God Himself. And oh, how much He loves this flock. If the chief shepherd is leaving the 99 to go find one missing sheep and then celebrating joyously that he found it. If the chief shepherd came to earth to seek and save the lost, donning the likeness of a man, if the chief shepherd bore upon himself the sins of his sheep, if the chief shepherd spilled his own blood for the sheep, I ask you, how much does this chief shepherd love his flock? His love certainly is not quantifiable, but I can tell you this. Christ loves His sheep with more intensity and ferocity and pure, holy passion than any under-shepherd ever could. Christ loves His sheep so much that He Himself raises up under-shepherds to care for them. And He has strictly charged them to feed His sheep he tells his under-shepherd, tell them of the chief shepherd. Tell them of the love he has for them. To care for them. To watch over them. And every God-appointed shepherd is given some sense of the love this chief shepherd has for his sheep. 
But any shepherd that is worth anything will beg and plead with the Lord that he would expand his love for Christ's sheep, that he may love them if even just a little bit more like him. An under-shepherd will do his work imperfectly and always aware of his inadequacy to do this work because he remembers this is the flock of God. Any faithful ministry, any faithful ministry will have that at its core. Our third aspect, the call to faithful shepherding is a call to care for a particular people. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So he's telling the church that he's exhorting the elders among you, and now he's saying to the elders, care for the people among you. This is very similar to what Paul charged the elders at the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, isn't it? He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Care for these people. The Lord calls the shepherd, he raises up the shepherd, and he places places the shepherd over a particular flock that he might care for those people. A shepherd is not called to shepherd various churches. As a side note, I would like to point out that this, is a, this text is a great argument against satellite campuses. It is a great argument against satellite campuses. Why? Because it's very difficult to shepherd a flock that is among you. How much more impossible would it be to shepherd a flock that's not among you? A flock that is here, there, and everywhere in this city, in that city. Truthfully, satellite campuses are much more akin to a corporate franchise than a biblical church model. But I digress. The point here is that specific elders are placed over a specific people. An elder is not called to to care for and tend to people from different churches, but from his place where God has appointed him. Fourth, the call to faithful shepherding is a call to oversight. He says, exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Here we find the verb form of a word that was used, that is used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to a pastor. It's overseer. Pastors are called overseers. And now we see that overseers exercise oversight. That is a redundant definition, isn't it? An overseer practices oversight, obviously. Oversight has an administrative element to it. The elder is not only concerned with preaching, he is also tasked with the care of the business of the church, both practical and spiritual. You remember in Acts chapter 6, don't you, when the complaint arose of the Hellenistic Jews? And they brought the complaint to the elders. They were saying the Hellenistic Jews are being skipped in the daily distribution. We need somebody to take care of this. The elders didn't say, this is such a small, silly matter. How dare you bring this tiny matter to us? We are only focused on spiritual matters. No, 
They solved the problem. They practiced oversight. They were exercising oversight over that issue. And in so, they were examples to all of us in doing so. Oversight also indicates a watchful care over the flock. The shepherd is concerned with the goings-on of his people. He is not distant and disinterested in what happens in their lives. He exercises oversight in the care of their souls. That can be difficult work as well, most certainly. And so it is fitting that Peter says what he says next. Fifth aspect, the call to faithful shepherding requires a willing servant. The call to faithful shepherding requires a willing servant. He says that you're to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. A bit ago we said that there is a particular manner in which God wants His ministers to minister, and here we see it as God would have you. There is a particular way that God intends ministry to take place That is to say that we are not open to just come up with however we please to do it. God has a particular way in which He wants it to be done. That's why we are very particular here of how we do things. is not for any other reason other than God is particular. God has a particular way of doing it. But these next three aspects of the call to faithful shepherding are much more focused on the heart. Very simply, what he is saying here is that he's not to be forced to do this work, but he's to do it willingly, out of a desire of his own. The word compulsion is from a root word that means necessity or pressure or distress. That he's being constrained by some unwanted force to enter this work. Many today take up a job because they simply need to pay the bills. There's no shame in that. You're providing for your family. However, the pastorate is not the kind of job you take up because you need to pay the bills. You'll inevitably be very poor at all that you do because your heart is not there at all. You're doing it under compulsion. There are many people who have left the pastorate to pursue another career. They would rather be doing something else. And some would say that's a very sad story. And indeed it would be for the church for a time. But that's actually a great thing. If the man who is a pastor would be just as comfortable being a chef or a doctor or a lawyer as he would be a pastor, that is not the man that God has appointed to care for his sheep. The man that God has appointed is someone who's doing it eagerly. If a pastor would rather sell cars or sell insurance. He's not the one who's to care for God's flock. Something that happens in small churches is a pastor will leave. We have many churches in the area who are pastorless. And the pastor leaves for one reason or another, and they look around the room and they say, You there, you have a college degree, you're articulate, you've been here for a time. Why don't you be the one to lead us? And so the man takes up the responsibility because somebody needs to. But it's not in the man's heart to be the pastor. There's no divine call on his life. What he's doing is stepping up under compulsion to help the church. 
You know, in a situation like that, the man may think that he's doing the church a service, but truthfully, the church would be better off waiting for the man that God has appointed to care for that flock than compel someone else to do it. The shepherd is not a career man. He's not the next man up. He's not building his resume or trying out a new career path. The article that I quoted from earlier about the shepherd in France stated this, and this is very insightful for the work of the ministry. It says, quote, The solitary life still attracts plenty of youngsters seeking a change, but few stay on beyond a couple of seasons, end quote. You know, the average shelf life of a pastor is three or four years. It's just a couple of seasons, isn't it? It can also be said that the privilege of ministry, it attracts many young men, while the pains of the ministry will eventually drive those same young men away. The privileges of the ministry attract people, but the pains of the ministry drive people away. The man who serves under compulsion will eventually be run off by the very task of shepherding. Spurgeon said it like this, The trials of a true minister are not few. Let no man who looks for ease of mind and seeks the quietude of life enter the ministry. If he does so, he will flee from it in disgust. End quote. Many people enter the ministry because they desire the freedom that they think it brings or even the idea of being able to spend time in study. But as soon as the difficulties that come along with the ministry arise, they escape, leaving the flock unattended. Think of Jesus' words in John chapter 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Then he tells us why the man fled. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. By contrast, the minister of God has a sense of a divine calling upon his shoulders and an inner longing and even burning desire for the pained privilege of overseeing the flock of God. And this is why Peter states to do this willingly. As a matter of fact, this is the verse, very first qualification for an overseer in 1 Timothy 3. He writes that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that he is desiring a noble task. Paul uses two different words there, aspire and desire, to refer to the, the passion, the desire that he has. Jeremiah gives us a sense of this, doesn't he? If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. That's the man who is called of God. We can reword this by saying simply that the sheep need a shepherd who wants to be there. Times will be very hard. Persecution and suffering will come, both great and small. And if the shepherd is not there because he has a divinely given desire to be there, he will not last. Six, the call to faithful shepherding requires passion for the work. He says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. 
The call to faithful shepherding requires passion for the work. Eagerly, he says. This too is a qualification of an elder in the list that we find in Titus 1. The idea of shameful gain. It is referring to an unjust means of gaining money. Think of embezzling or stealing or manipulating the congregation. We can look no further than the prosperity preachers to find an example of this today, can't we? Listen, hopefully I don't need to say this to you, but if you ever hear a pastor telling you to sow a seed into his ministry so that he can buy a jet, run and run very far away. That is not someone who is shepherding the flock of God. He is fleecing the flock. His heart is not with the Lord, but he is after earthly treasures and possessions. One thing that we can be absolutely sure of is that God hates the prosperity gospel. God hates the prosperity gospel. And another thing that we can be sure of is that the fierce anger of the Lord awaits unrepentant prosperity preachers. Shepherds are not to do this work for shameful gain, but eagerly. This is another way of saying willingly. It is a rephrasing of the the one we looked at a bit ago. The call to faithful shepherding begins with the inner desire for the work of ministry, pains, and privileges. Imagine a man taking the role of elder for shameful gain or under compulsion. At the first sign of trouble, he's leaving. The sheep need a shepherd who's not looking to take advantage of them, but to care for them. Here Peter uses a word that means showing an intense desire to do something. It actually could mean that he would do it for free if he must. There is a fire burning in his bones. He's not looking to make as much as he can while he can. He's looking to care for the flock. Seventh, the call to faithful shepherding is a call to practice what you preach. I will tell you as a side note, this has been the hardest passage to prepare in all of 1 Peter. Not because of grammar issues or understanding it, but because this text beats you up as a pastor. And it shows you and reflects all of the ways that you fail to measure up to what the chief shepherd has called you to. And it drives you to your knees in pleading for God's help. Here he says that we need to practice what we preach. He tells you to do it not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Another way of saying this is not lording over those allotted to you by God, Some would see the ministry as an opportunity to feed their hunger for power, as it is indeed a position of spiritual leadership and authority. However, the elder does not have power and authority in and of himself, but is merely an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. And as such, the elder has authority over the flock only in as much as he operates according to the word of God. That is... This is not an opportunity to control people's lives and make them do what you want them to do. 
It is an opportunity to create, it is not an opportunity to create a legion of mini-me's. No, it is an opportunity to see people's lives shaped into the image of Christ as they obey what He wants them to do. The one who is domineering cannot care for God's flock because He will not. He's not interested in taking care of them. He has no interest in leading them. He came here to lord over them. This is a spiritual abuser who came to fulfill his desire for power and he leaves when he's had his fill. The lust for power is one that is deeply rooted in pride. Lording over people puts the man's word above God's word. Instead, a faithful shepherd is one who practices Practices what he preaches. Paul wrote this to Timothy as well, telling him to set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. The sheep need a shepherd who says, follow me as I follow Christ, not do as I say. Many a sermon can be unpreached, if I may use that term, by a life lived contrary to the message. Number eight, the call to faithful shepherding is a call to receive a crown. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The contrast that Peter has been making here in this list shows us that there are, unfortunately and heartbreakingly, some shepherds who very much do take on this role under compulsion or for shameful gain or to be domineering over those in the fold. These are shepherds that have their own agenda, and Christ's precious sheep are just a means to an end as they feed themselves while starving the sheep. I want to first say here that just that it's not just a, a faithful shepherd who receives a reward. So does the unfaithful shepherd. And I read this with fear and trembling from Jeremiah 23. He says, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. The reward for unfaithful shepherding is the judgment of God. The fierce, burning rage of a holy God. I pray that I would be found to be a faithful shepherd. Here we are reminded again that these sheep do not belong to the under-shepherd. But they are merely stewards of the flock of God until He returns for them. Here he is once again reminding us of the imminent return of Christ Jesus. The shepherd ought to feel the weight of that return of Christ, knowing that there will be strict judgment for him on that day if he is found not having cared for the flock of God. This is the deceitfulness of the pursuit of personal glory here in this earth, of pursuing a platform, of wanting men to glorify and honor you, of fleecing the flock That is all the reward that you will get when the reality is that the real treasure, the unfading crown of glory, it's found in the next life. Everything an unfaithful shepherd strives for is meaningless and empty. 
And as he receives the praises and riches from men, he's receiving all the glory that he will ever receive. However, there is a great reward for the shepherd who does so faithfully amidst all of the trials, temptations, and tragedies that he experiences in the ministry. He may shepherd 3,000 or he might shepherd 30. He might be invited to speak at conferences and seminaries and he might never be known. He might write plenty of books and he might be called to suffer and agonize lovingly and joyfully over an unknown church in an unknown remote part of the world. Either way, one day, he will see the appearing of the glory of the chief shepherd. And what a joy it will be on the last day for the shepherd to deliver the flock of God to the chief shepherd. All of them fed, nourished, loved, cared for. And every last one of them overjoyed to see their chief shepherd. On that day, the sheep will forget about their under-shepherd for the beauty of the chief shepherd. But on that day, the chief shepherd will reward his under-shepherds for faithfully tending to his precious flock. And on that day, there will be no more sorrow for the flock, for they or for the shepherd, for we will all be with the Lord. All of the inadequate ways that the under-shepherds have served the flock and trusted to them will be dwarfed and overshadowed by the tremendous care that we will receive from Christ Himself for all of eternity. Listen to Revelation 7.17. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. May God empower myself Shepherds that he raises up here in the future and shepherds everywhere to love and care for the flock of God faithfully and so receive the crown of glory from the hands of the chief shepherd himself. Let's stand. As you know, we will pray sing a final song, and we will be dismissed to drive home very carefully. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have not left it up to inexperienced ministers or even to the most experienced minister to figure out how they would love to do ministry, but that you have laid it out clearly for us all, and that you've done so publicly so that I can't keep this to myself and lie to people and hide the truth from people. But you wrote it down for us all to see so that shepherds are held accountable, so that we all have clear expectations of what's expected and where the shepherd fails in one area, that your word would be there to convict, to shine a light on it. And Lord willing, by the power of the Spirit, to strengthen those weak areas. Lord, I pray for this church, that you would bless them with a better shepherd in me, and that you would raise up a plurality of shepherds who apply this text for the glory of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.